welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange with Leander Young, where we dig into conversations with seasoned musicians to discuss their life, art, and the faith of jazz as they see it. In this episode, we interview composer, educator, two-time Grammy winner trumpet player from Michigan, John Bailey. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange. Today, we have John Bailey with us, sir. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Leander. And John was very nice because I screwed up my time in for once. And he was, you know, he worked with me well on that. That's all I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a thing. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. Well, sir, could you introduce yourself to the people and then we'll get right into it? Sure. My name is John Bailey. I'm a composer and musician. Uh, I play the trumpet and I sit at the piano and attempt to compose at it. Sometimes I compose in real time when I'm so-called improvising. And other times I sit down and write it out and work it out. Actually, let's go into that first, actually. <laughs> so when do most of your ideas for your songs come to mind? When you're just improvising by yourself on a practice or it's like you did a riff during a solo and you're like, yo, that will work as a... You know what it is, man? It's a constant soundtrack that's happening every every moment that I'm awake. I'm constantly just walking around, whistling and singing to myself and ideas are, I'm constructing them and I'm changing a note here and there and I'm changing keys and I'm just constantly... I don't want to say creating because that sounds, you know, it sounds pretentious actually. But um, you know, I'm, I'm uh, uh, there's con there's a constant soundtrack inside of my mind, and so I'm basically just living through music all day long, and so the ideas flow very well if you do that because there's a lot of practicing. You know, we talk a lot about as instrumentalists, especially on the, uh, not a, well, you know, I'm a trumpet player, so there's a certain amount of um, calisthenics physically that you have to do to stay up on your instrument. Um, so there's that aspect of it, of course. But there's a lot of practicing you can do with the horn in the case. And that's what I'm talking about. You know, when you're just working the ideas. And a lot of times for me, I don't know how it is for you. You mentioned that you're a percussionist. Um, I would imagine as a percussionist, you're constantly fidgeting. Like for, for, for me, my right hand is basically like, you know, the kids, what the kids call a fidget spinner. You ever seen those things? Yes. So my, so my, my, you know, speaking in piano terms, my two, three, and four of my right hand, I'm doing it right now. You can't see me, man, but I'm playing a two octave chromatic scale at breakneck tempo right now. And I can't stop doing it. <laughs> okay. no, no, that's maybe not the most interesting idea that no, I've had no, no. all day. But I but... do get you on that because <laughs> one advantage I would say I have over you as a percussionist is that there's just beats and rhythms everywhere. So it's They're not all as around us all the time, man. Huh? It's, in, it's, it's, it's all around us all the time. Yeah. Rhythm is everywhere. It's inside our bodies in the form of heartbeat. It's, a, you know, it's, it's in nature. And there's so much of it happening all over the place and, and so many infinite possibilities of how to organize it, you know? 
into into a number of different grooves. Okay. Well, I know you feel me on that. I definitely do. <laughs> but that's like a whole conversation on how even totally. from people doing construction could lead to a ooh. <laughs> oh man, I had this I had this teacher when I was in high school. He took me to Europe with a um, Blue Lake Fine Arts Camp had a international exchange program. This man's name, he was one of the most important uh, teachers to me. His name is James T. Olcott. James was a super geeked out cat. Like he was always doing the most, and it never stopped. He was always doing the most extraordinary things to try to keep you tuned into music. And we, and we did this every day. It was relentless. Walk down the street, he'd say, you know, I'm hitting wood right now, but he'd hit a, like a lamppost. Like, in, you know, he'd be in Brussels or something. You put it in a lamppost. Think, think, what pitch is that? Mm. <laughs> so he's doing, he was doing it with ear training, you know. And, and of course, you're just speaking of rhythm and construction, uh, you know, everything from the uh, the rhythmic pattern of a, of a uh, what, is, what is that machine that, that, that breaks up all the, 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 the cement? It breaks up onto what? It breaks up the cement, man. Oh, yeah. No. A lumberjack. <laughs> you know, everything from that to the most subtle sounds of, you know. Uh, are you really into DCI? Like, like Drum Corps International? Um, I'm into rhythm in general. Okay, and there's a composer that is for DCI, and he's with one of the bands. Yeah. And literally, that's how one of their breaks when they were doing their formation came about. A lumberjack like slipped while he was lumberjacking. Oh, and it was like, yeah. Gah, 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 gah. And Ooh, yes. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, a little geek out moment, I know. <laughs> oh no, that's not with you. I'm with you there. You know, it's, uh, you know, that's, that's a, that was important, uh, an important part. I grew up in East Lansing, Michigan, and um, you know, home of the Spartan marching band. Yes, uh, Michigan State University and our East Lansing High School marching band was always trying to be just as as uh, spectacular as they were. So I grew up in the neighborhood, and on Saturday afternoons, pardon me, I believe it was on Saturday mornings, or it could have been Sundays. I'm sorry, they, the the games were on Saturdays, so it could have been the Saturdays in which there were not games. Um. Spartan marching band would be rehearsing and they were, you know, like 150 large, right? And you could go and sit on, on, on some benches that they had set up there in the practice field and watch them. And I could hear them from where I grew up in my home. So I would get on my bike and I'd ride over there and they would be having, your, they'd, they'd be face away from you, walking away from you. And they'd do that about face and all the bells of the instruments in front of you. And there is nothing more like it takes you right back. You just sit back. It's like the hair on the top of your head is, is going backwards, you know. So that was actually, you know, um, I don't mind saying at all. And it, and, it, and it was a very important part of becoming rhythmically inclined, shall we say, mm -hmm. you know, in high school. Because you had to walk, you had to march, you had to play at the same time. So it just it just it just gave you great rhythm, you know. Oh, no, I so I feel I feel that that's an important experience for it, and I hope there's, you know, that, that there's more of a marching band tradition 
And I hope it continues where it's continuing, and I hope it expands. I mean, I hope so too. Yeah. It looks like it's not, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, I don't, <laughs> they have I don't problems see it. like jazz artists too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like to go yeah. see the cadets perform, like like once a year when they're doing their circuit with the Cavaliers and the Crusaders <laughs> and all of them, the Blue Devils. But I'm telling you, it doesn't seem like it's growing. <laughs> I have a I have a kid whose father was actually in the Blue Devils who I work with on trumpet. Nice. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so I have great respect for them because I'm from that neck of the woods and I believe the Blue Devils, were they not out of Toronto or? I thought they were it? from Where the were... Cali side. Yeah, I don't remember. It was, this is, this is, this is a long time ago we're speaking about. <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah, I grew up through that scene and, and we actually used to, when Michigan State's had homecoming, all the, all the students would go home. And the East Lansing High School Marching Band was the band that took over and, and took the place and played. We played for the Spartan football game every October, every year. Mm-hmm. So that was a great, great honor to have as a 14-year-old kid, you know. Yes. No, I, that's a whole other world. <laughs> I'm trying not to keep it on DCI. <laughs> so. no, that's, a, that's cool, man. Rhythm is where it's all at, right? Yes. Okay, so but you said you were you were born and raised in Michigan. So, what happened yes. after that? How did you end up in New York? Uh, by way of uh, Eastman School of Music, I, I went there from '84 through '88. In those days, uh, there weren't really any, hardly any jazz programs, and the places that did have, see, I wanted to go to a place that I could get like a classical trumpet um, education but I didn't want to go to the place that just had that. So my choices in those days were actually New England Conservatory or Eastman. And it was a clear choice to go to Eastman for a number of reasons. So I did that first. Um, Then um, I was always impressed by what University of Miami had to offer. So um, I traveled there in 1988 and uh, I was a teaching assistant there for a couple of years. And then I spent the next five years actually teaching at the University of Miami and uh, at Florida International University. And that kind of ran its course and I moved to New York. So it, that was, that takes you from high school, 1984 through uh, 1995 when I finally. Oh, still. I love the campus of Miami, especially for the artists. Cause That's they have beautiful. like that one little stage in the middle. If you've been there recently. No, I actually have not. And I know that the Frost school was completely rebuilt and I have, so we're a, talking 88 through 95, which it was the old building, which is sort of like a little quad kind of thing. And then there's a lake. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> okay. And then yeah. you're in New York now and you're teaching up here. And actually, before I even get to that part, I'm just curious, what made you actually want to do more jazz? Because you said you were looking for, there weren't any jazz programs. So yeah, I was always playing jazz. Jazz was always my dessert, you know. My sister played trumpet. She was three years older, and so I was. I didn't start till sixth grade, but from fourth grade, I was hearing all the dark technical studies and all of that played on the trumpet very well by her, by the way. And um, I just I was always attracted to the trumpet. Um, so when I got in sixth and started playing the trumpet, I was immediately attracted to jazz because my sister who was in, I'm 
trying to remember, the ninth grade when I was in sixth grade, when I first started playing, her classmate from the exact same uh, class was Brad Good, if you know the name Brad Good. And Brad Good was um, an incredible trumpet player at a very, very early age. And he now runs the uh, jazz program at the University of Colorado in Boulder. Um, and uh, he was a really big influence on all of us. So he was coming around. And I was hearing him play. You know, he was 11, 12 years old and, and flying up and down the trumpet. He was a virtuoso. And so that was incredible. And he kept talking about jazz and kept bringing jazz records around. And um, I mean, my taste in music, I, this has been going way back. My first record I ever got, this is just a, this is a tangent, a bit, a bit of a tangent, but it, it serves to the same point. No, keep going. Uh, what was, uh, was Jesus Christ Superstar. So I'm all of five, five or six years old. Jesus Christ Superstar comes out. I got older sisters, three of them, and they're, hooked on it you know they want to and so i have the double lp and a little record player and i used to lie around and just play and i remember i was hooked on the tune what's the buzz tell me what's happening you know and that band that was that london sound too man yes from 71 72 that's Andrew a Lloyd deep groove. The true london sound yes that okay. true london sound the, the the and the cast of that record the band of that record is extraordinary and the groove that they struck, even even on a one of the more quaint tunes on it, which is "What's the Buzz," right? Um, I was listening to that from from early on, and that kind of eclectic taste in music was always around me. My brother was twelve years old; he was playing the flute along with the Jethro Tull records, so I got hooked on Ian Anderson at the same time. And then you got Brad Good coming around saying, "Hey, you know, you should check out, you know, Dizzy Gillespie. You know, you should." Here, oh, by the way, listen to this guy, Freddie Hubbard. He's pretty good. And um, he said, I, I, I approached him when I was in the eighth grade. And I said, I want to learn how to play jazz. I, I've kind of got interested in this now. I want to do this. And by the way, I heard Ella Fitzgerald with the Count Basie Orchestra at the Lansing Civic Center in 1977, my first jazz concert ever. Mm. And in those days, they had little jazz clubs that I could go. There's a place called... Oh, I can't remember the thing, but um, the, I'll, it'll come to me. Anyway, this, this, this little joint, we used to go, Brad Cook would, was in Prodigy, so he would play there. And I would go and hear him play, along with all these other amazing Michigan musicians, these Detroit cats, you know, it's just so many of them. Um, Marcus Belgrave and Harold McKinney, Eddie Rust, to name a few, you know. And there was another guy named Sherm Mitchell, who nobody knows, but it was a, an amazing multi-instrumentalist. And I and Brad knew Red Rodney, and so Red Rod, so I was listening to Red Rodney's play, and then I was introduced to Iris Sullivan. And it all just came together because of him, actually. So, so to fast forward on this, and um, you're really letting me go here, but let me finish this part of this conversation this way. This is what the service Brad Good did for me. He, <laughs> there was a guy named Mark Lewis who was Cappy Lewis's son who got permission from LaRue Brown, Clifford Brown's wife, to put out a transcription book of Clifford Brown's songs. And Brad had it. He had photocopied it from Mark. So when I asked Brad, how do I become a jazz musician? He photocopied that book for me, which has everything from studying Brown and then some. 
um, and then said, well, what songs should I learn? He said, well, learn this song. Here's a song called Confirmation. Learn that. And here's another song called Dada Lee. What he didn't tell me was what the, those were some of the hardest tunes in the repertoire, right? <laughs> so I just figured, well, I got these are the tunes that I got to know. So you mastered so I that at a young <laughs> I sat up in my room, man. And I also, by the way, had Miles, uh, Miles Plus 19 with Gil Evans Orchestra. So I played the Maze of Cadiz in Summer Camp. So I went, they told me, go buy that record, you know. And my, my teacher worked at Wazoo Records. So I was going, and he was picking out, oh, yeah, Bird in Flight, Dunbert, go listen to this. $1, $2 for my paper route, you know. And I'd be just, just, just uh, you know, surrounded by the, like, the, the best cats giving me the best music, you know. And I, I didn't know any better, so I just, like, sat up in my room after school all day and all night just... Like a, like it was a you know, a technical exercise. Just going through Cherokee from this Clifford Brown book, and then going, you know, getting the vowels down, you know, for the for the Donnelly. And I got to where I could play that stuff, and within you know six months to a year, I could I, I started working. I was able to do gigs, mm -hmm. like with my own bands, you know. Just one question on so, that, because you were so, young when you were getting all this sight from everybody on what to look into jazz. So do you think that's one of the main reasons why it's nowhere near as popular nowadays? The lack of record stores or just the lack of jazz being introduced to the youth? The latter. Okay. Obviously the latter. Because when I grew up, Ella Fitzgerald had the Memorex commercial. The, 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 the yeah, Tonight but that is also up. because, how should I put it? She was she, geared towards a different generation. But she was a jazz musician that came up through the ranks and had perfect pitch and was amazing. And she, and at the same time, was was a part of pop culture. Yeah, you know, and the list just goes on and on and on, right? Uh, I, I could turn on the, the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson any night, see a full big band doing all the play-ins, play-offs, and then, oh, here comes Clark Terry. Now I'm sitting there, I'm watching Clark Terry. Pop culture icon, right? a part of the popular culture. And uh, name one jazz musician who is a part of the pop culture today. There's not a single one. It doesn't really one exist. One came close, and it was a female you know? a few years ago. Yeah, I mean, hey, you know, the culture changes, and that's, that's what it is. Um, and this music in its purest forms have, has always been a part of a subculture, not a part of mainstream culture anyway. I mean, how do you, how do you explain um, the greatness of the, our, the Mozart of our time, Charlie Parker? How do you explain that there's little or no video footage of him? And so that's, you know, that gets to be kind of a dark subject, you know, but, no, but you're um, right, you're right. You know, but, um, this conversation began with us talking about um, our can, our personal connections with jazz and how did that come about. And the thing for me was always that jazz was always there, and it was it was again it was dessert. You know, I did all my classical warm ups and I did all my stuff. My, once my chops were up and I played through the Haydn Concerto or whatever I was working on for my teacher. Then I go and I had a couple of Jamie Eversall records or whatnot and. 
and play along with those. And that was always a part of my everyday life. You know, I looked forward to coming home and, and playing that music. Um, so by the time I had got to college, I was playing in Michigan State's jazz bands. You know, they had like four jazz bands and I played in the third band for three years and the second band for one year. I think all, I think actually all the way through high school, I did that. And so I had that experience, but I had no formal jazz education whatsoever. So like, you know, you have to sit me, sit me down and say, what is D minor seven? I, I couldn't really tell you. Okay. Strangely enough. Right. Um, but I could play, I had, you know, 15, 20 things I could play when I saw that symbol on the page. I didn't know why it worked. I just, you know, I was taking it right off, I think, Clifford Brown records at that point. Freddie Hubbard records, Lee Morgan records. The list goes on and on. Donald Byrd. I mentioned Bird and Flight, very important okay. record to me. Well, another question then. Since you finished playing college and me being a fanboy I am, my favorite drummer, Buddy Rich. Oh. See, that's a whole thing right there. Now, yes. <laughs> <laughs> now, everyone that I kind of spoke to who played or worked with him said that he was a capital A. Was he That's really that bad? It's the wrong framing. Uh, I mean, pardon me, but it's, um, um, it's unfair what you're saying. Because here's the thing. You're talking about a, a person who was in show business his whole life, right? from three, four years old, right? Who played with Charlie Parker. Anybody who ever played with Charlie Parker is a changed person from that point forward. I've never met anybody who wouldn't openly admit to me that after they heard Charlie Parker play live, or better yet, got a chance to actually play with the Mozart of our times. They were changed forever. Some people I used to work with that that they would I would I would deem them, I'm not gonna name names, but they deem them unwitting disciples of Charlie Parker. Because they couldn't help but be influenced by them and when the, the decisions that they made in programming and um, recording and everything else and the, and their whole life, you know. So <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so here you are. So let me let me continue, man. Because, <laughs> okay, okay. because now you have Buddy Rich, who was in that scene, who played on recordings with Buddy Rich, with uh, with 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 the great Charlie Parker. Yes, he was a part of that. As as I believe it was Alcon who said, somebody told me this and parted this to me. Alcon said, people don't understand. There was Charlie Parker, and then there was everybody else. <laughs> and so here's Buddy Rich in the center of that with all his chops, right? Yes. Buddy the Boy Wonder, greatest drummer in the world, highest paid sideman in the music business, working with Tommy Dorsey, right? Making thousands of dollars a week, you know? Then fast forward to 1986, little kid, John Bailey, he gets to play with, with Buddy Rich, right? Who am I to judge him? So when Buddy Rich uh, comes off the bandstand in passion, really upset, and says, 
you know, days off, nothing to do, and you come and you play this for me, F you. <laughs> I think that's understandable because he had high standards and he loved the music. And I didn't want to go on the band because for I was asked to go on a couple of times and and I didn't go, man, because because I'd heard all the stories and like he said, oh, a-hole or whatever. Um, and I didn't go for the longest, like almost the whole year. And then they said, hey, you know, he's we're coming to Monroe Community College, which that's a, that's the community college in uh, Rochester, New York. Okay. So I was there in school, 1986. And um, they said, come on, check the band, you know. Then there's we got a week off, and then you can come on the band if you like what you hear. And so it got me like a backstage pass, man, Leander. I came in, I'm sitting, I've got the, I'm looking right at Buddy Rich's right hand, right, right side of his body. And the drum set is there and I'm looking at it from the backstage. And he's got that, remember how I used to have the, like a big Chinese symbol or, or some kind of large symbol off to the right um, as part of his kit. And they started Wind Machine. He hits two at the fill into Wind Machine, whatever that is, for 32 bars in and whatnot. And I was looking for a phone because I was going to call my mom and dad and say, I'm going to the road with Buddy Rich. I'm quitting school. I'm out. <laughs> because, because I had to play with that. It was it was too amazing not to not to take that opportunity, and uh, you know if I said I wasn't miserable on the road for some of that time I would be lying, but um, boy I'm glad I I had that opportunity, and uh, the older I get the more um, appreciation I have for him and what he was all about. Well, everyone that yeah. also. Played with me also said something nice like, my check was always on time. He helped me with my mortgage. But they just said that he was an A. So I'm not throwing any shade well, at the guy. <laughs> you, know, you know, hey, I mean, uh, you know, the thing about him was that he had these mood swings that I don't think he had a whole lot of control over. And um, I've often, often, I have no context on this whatsoever, just as a caveat. But I just having lived and seen people and watching people's behaviors over the years and then observing his behavior and catalog cataloging that i wonder if he was bipolar you know or a manic depressive <clears throat> and um just never diagnosed and um it would explain a lot i think you know that is because he you could never people would instruct me the, the older cats in the band would instruct me you know for instance, these little things like this, you know, but he was always in the front of the bus. So if he's got his, uh, his arms crossed and he's looking down, don't say anything to him. It means he doesn't want you to talk to him. If he doesn't have his arms crossed and he's looking up and he spots you as you go by, you make sure to say hello because he'll reprimand you for not saying hello. Yeah. <laughs> so, so there, yeah, that's just, and that's one of many little little cues that I was given, like to make to, to, to sort of monitor Buddy's mood swings and where he was actually at, you know. 
sometimes he'd hand you a beer and say, great job, kid. You know, okay. I remember one time my father taught me to do a, a full Windsor, but I, I, we had to wear ties, suit and ties on almost all these gigs, right? Mm -hmm. So one night I couldn't, tie, I couldn't figure out how to do the double Windsor. You know, I just learned a couple of years before that and I'd forgotten. And when he sees me struggling with it on the bus, he says, this, what's the matter with you, kid? If you know how to tie a tie, get over here. And so I, I came over and I said, oh, and he proceeded to show me and to give me a, a full tutorial on how to do a half Windsor. So to this day, if I put a tie on it or do a half Windsor, the way the buddy taught me to do it. He's like being like a dad in that, in that instance. Okay. That's also be sure nice to know <laughs> yeah man you know talk to talk you've talked to some of these guys maybe talk if you talk to tom garland or you talk to greg gisbert they'll tell you man he was he was amazing and he was the greatest drummer in the world until the day he died on top of it all okay so ray charles <laughs> let's go into that one Oh my goodness. Okay. Oh. So, since you got to play with him for it, a long time. The hit time. parade. Yes. <laughs> the hit parade. Yeah, oh boy. What an incredible that experience. Every every moment on the bandstand, top to bottom, front to back, goosebumps on every tune. Goosebumps. And I had the good fortune of now there may I think there's some in Incorrect information on it. Um, there's a beautiful cat by the name of David Hoffman took one year off of tour touring with Ray Charles from the the uh, coveted Marcus Belgrave Johnny Cole's seat on the, with the Ray Charles Orchestra. So I was allowed to step in for one season. So I did one tour for one year, but because it was that chair, I got to go down and play with Ray and a couple of. So. Um, all I can say about that is that I made some of my dearest friends from being on the road there. Jake Ventrice was one of my dearest friends. He just recently passed away. Rudy Johnson took me to school every night and um, allowed me to come into his room and imparted his wisdom on onto me, you know. And um, I got to be on the same bandstand with the genius of soul. So what's not to like? <laughs> Give me a story of the guy playing with him. Anything. I'm just... I don't know right. too many people who actually played with him. I had Nathan Easton, who was at one point always playing with Stevie Wonder. And I think that's the closest wow. I ever got to a Ray Charles story. <laughs> yeah, we did We did one We did one night. I'm going to tell you, and it's going gonna, it's gonna, to... I'm going to tell you a story that's going to embarrass myself. We played in uh, Aspen's, whatever they call it, Snowmass, Aspen or something. Carla. They had a jazz festival out there, you know, maybe maybe it was called a Soul Festival or something. But Taj Mahal and Ray Charles were on the same bands or on the same uh, bill. And Taj Mahal warmed up for us. Well, they had some, some, some draft beer flowing backstage. And um, I had the... Um, misfortune of drinking a little bit too much of it. <laughs> I'm talking about, I, I mean, I think it, it, honestly the elevation probably had something to do with it. 
but I got a little tipsy. I got a little tipsy, and then I had to play. And um, and they called just for a thrill, which was the one one of the tunes I had to go down and stand next to Ray and play a solo with Ray Charles. <laughs> and um, <laughs> my biggest concern, and believe me, it was a big concern, was getting off of that bandstand and getting down there without tripping or falling down. Then when I started to play the solo, it was like some magic happened. Like I was in the right space. I was finally, finally relaxed enough <laughs> to play and be on like somewhere near the level of Ray Charles. I'm not nowhere, ever, but like, but like I felt akin to him. He felt me too, and he was talking to me during that whole solo, and saying like, you know, all right, all right, <laughs> you know, like, honey, he's calling me honey, um, <laughs> and that that's. Uh, that's one experience I had with, with Mr. Ray Charles. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, something I'll throw in there since you told me one. I met Ray Barreto years ago oh. when I was much younger. I want to say when I was like 10. And I'm talking to this guy about his music and everything. And he's like, how do you know so much about me? You know what I said to this guy? What's that? I said, you're my favorite saxophone player. And his face dropped. He must have laughed. No, he must have laughed. No, it dropped, and then he just started laughing at me. I knew his songs. I knew everything about it, but I said saxophone for some reason. It took took him him two 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 or three seconds. I could see it. Take two two or three seconds to process, and then... (laughs) Yes. Just like that, right? Right in my face. That's exactly why I remember it. Oh, man. Oh, they probably started with like shaking his head. Oh, Papa, you know. Ah, uh, so yeah, that's an embarrassing story of me. Man, oh, I man. get you. You're my favorite saxophone player, man. Yeah, I literally was talking him through the Acid album, like what was going oh, on there, wow. what I liked about it, and this is like literally, I think I was eleven or not ten or whatever, right? And yeah, an amazing record. Yeah, that's one of my, so, I guess, greatest embarrassment moments or whatever you want oh, to man. say. I got, I got a good one too, man. I, I'm not sure if I can outdo that. Maybe. Maybe you tell me. Um, I first, uh, I don't know if you're old enough to remember Jardinelli's, yes. but there used to be a, a tr- like a trumpet shop. Carmine Cruz taught out of Jardinelli's he's a music store. And I went up there when I was still in high school, my first trip to New York um, with some friends from the McDonald's All-American Band. And so we were there in town playing the Macy's Parade, right? 1983. And so I go up. Who's standing behind the counter but John Faddis? And I have known already about John Faddis, you know, and I knew what he looked like. And I knew, and he said, and uh, went up to him. And before I could figure out how to say anything, I just went, John Faddis, I love you. <laughs> and he, of course, just if you know Mr. Faddis, you know, he, he's, he's going to have some fun with, with you no matter what, you know. And he had some fun with me that day. He started he started laughing at me. <laughs> oh man! But that was that's yeah, that's a, that was a pretty good one, right? I mean, I didn't say he was my favorite saxophone player. But. I, I, listen, I I still don't live that. The people who were there, they still remind me of that. <laughs> oh, that's awesome! It's awesome. And you said it to the right guy because Ray would never take that like the wrong way. You know, he had a great. It was, yeah. And he loved you and appreciated you in that. How was playing with Ray, though? 
no, we're talking about Ray Barreto now. Yes. Well, greatest, one of the, certainly the best sideman gig of my life, you know, because I was with him for six years. We did three records. We did a bunch of tour, touring with who's who musicians. A lot of times because he, he was a Latin jazz icon, we would often be the headliner at the festivals in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like, it was like I was an Art Blakey's band Latin style. That's what that experience was like for me. Nice. Okay. Was there any moment that stood out with him, though? With, 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 with Clave. <laughs> um, so I loved him. I still love him. I still think about him all the time. Your, your story you just imparted me just makes me almost tear up thinking about what a beautiful cat he is and, and I miss him and, you know. Okay. What else can you say? <laughs> well, before I keep going out and answering everything on these other artists you played with, so you have on your album, Time Bandits. Great album. Yeah. Outstanding. Thank you. The title actually matches it. It brings you back, to, at least in my opinion, because I wasn't around then, to like what <clears throat> I picture the old jazz halls would be sounding or be playing. And then you have... George Cable's on there. You have Victor oh, Lewis man. on there. How did you get them? Oh, even Scott. How did you... You've been long-term friends with them? Or was it just like... Well, yeah, Vic, Victor, I chose for my first and second record. He played on all my other records. And um, so I, I already knew Victor going in, and I was writing specifically for him. And I always um, try to uh, have Victor write something for... For my records not the first one the first one you know I, I waited so long to make my first record that i had tunes man that i'd written in 1991 that had never been recorded or were, were only on like demos and stuff so first record was like all about my original material you know um the second record was a <laughs> a uh, a protest a political protest record that, can you imagine who are you protesting <laughs> Um, I was actually protesting the culture at large, but particularly the uh, the, the person who was uh, had been elected the president of the United States at that okay, time. Okay, fair, 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 fair. Um, and sort of just saying, <laughs> you don't need to say his name. I get you. Okay. Well, you, but you, you know, you you're just looking at the whole larger picture of this. You know, what what? How do you explain that? Well, you explain that it's a, that it's some. Um, Frankly, and this I'm going to get canceled by somebody for this, but I, I don't frankly care. Um, uh, white America's reaction to eight years of a black president—that's what that that is. So you okay. take in that information, and from there, where my brain went was like there was that going on, and then and then and, and I thought this was a—you see—I was an optimist. I thought all oh, that was over. I thought we were cool now, like we were we were moving on, you know. And then you'd see the back, this backlash and see ourselves going backwards in time, you know, or people attempting to send us back to uh, 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 other times. Other times. Um, other times. Other times. Okay. Other times. When, when a less mature America. And no one's going to cancel you, less, don't trust me. <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's okay. I can take it. I'm, you know, I teach children. I can handle it. Um <laughs> 
Um, so I began to just pontificate about this whole thing. And it became the, the other half of this man is that um, I was beginning to, as I got older, realize that people didn't know who some of these great jazz musicians actually even were anymore. Like you talk to somebody who's a teenager or even a 20 something person, but you say Dizzy Gillespie to them and they go, who? And so I saw it as like, almost like my, my duty to like bring his name back into the fold. And so what I did is I use it as a dual purpose. So it's because you may, you may know, or you maybe don't that, uh, uh, he did, uh, excuse me, Dizzy Gillespie ran for president in 1964. Um, and so I, I was just thinking about, well, maybe if we just had a black president in 1965, you know, even if it was just for four years, maybe we would be, we have, we will have moved on by now. That's the premise of that record. I actually. And just the whole idea of humanity and empathy and, you know. I <clears> did who, not who, know who, he know, ran. I actually he, well, he did it. He did that. it. As, you see, he did it as a joke. He did it as a publicity. Story. Oh, okay. okay and then okay. people, and then people took to him, and it, it became like real. And then he he had this whole he had cabinet posts, you know, he had like Miles Davis as, as the head of CIA, and Louis Armstrong as 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 the Secretary of Agriculture. Wink, wink. Um, uh, Duke Ellington as Secretary of, uh, Secretary of State, you know, and on and on it went. And of course, in, in typical awesome Diz fashion, you know, he made it fun. Um, so I had fun with that record. And then, so this record came around and um, I fell in love with George when I was still in high school. Again, just going back to Brad Good, he, he brought me down to Lexington, Kentucky. It was my first trip on a bus by myself. And he had me stay with him for the International Trumpet Guild Conference in 1981 or two, I think. And um, he put me in this room, and the room had a record player and one record. The one record was the brand new pressing of Manhattan Symphony with uh, Dexter Gordon, with George Cables on piano. So I've been in love with George Cables for decades. And so when it came time to do a quartet record, it's a tough call, man. Like, who do you get for piano? Because that's a, the most important share in some ways when you're writing compositions and you're the only horn. Because that's the other horn, you know, in some cases, depending on how you write. And so I was, uh, George came down to, to, actually came down to my gig and the Can You Imagine gig with the sextet with, uh, with Victor. And we met then. <clears throat> and when I asked him to play, he, he agreed. So I was in heaven. And I knew Scott Colley from, um, I'd seen him with, are you familiar with his work with uh, Jim Hall, the guitar player? Yes, I actually do. Yeah, the duo stuff they did. I saw that that duo live and at the Vanguard and always, always, always wanted to play with Scott Colley. So I cold called him, man. Actually, nice. I actually like, <laughs> I, I didn't call, I, I emailed him. Oh, I said, okay. I want you on this record. Guess who's on the record? You like that. What do you think? Can I can I call you and talk to you about it? He said yes, and then then we had the discussion. So it wasn't, but I sort of like out of the blue, you know. He had come to a gig that I was on with um, Alan Broadbent. You know, Alan Broadbent is his piano player, and I had done this thing where where he had a trio and I came in and, and sort of guested, 
and uh, he was friends with the bass player, Don Falzone. So Scott had come to that. And that was my chance to sort of reconnect with him and say, you know what? You're a badass and I want to play with you someday. And so I followed up on it. Okay, man. No, no. This is So that's that. <laughs> well, all that I could add to that is there are a lot of people I know my age, if not younger, even older, that did not know who Jeff Beck was. That's deep, right? No, so, so I really understand when you say people don't know who Galepsi is and all, all of these other Yeah, ones. exactly, man. And Jeff Beck, I mean, I mean, just go back to, wasn't it Songs in the Key of Life he played on? He guessed it on? Yeah, he played like, on that, Ella Bird, all those things, yeah. Yeah, and every time he comes around, he's got a new sound. And he's got a new way of bending the, the dickens out of the strings to make some amazing event happen. So, yeah. yeah so He'll be missed, right? I feel you on that. That's why try to keep it alive, try to talk about it. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, you're with me on that, man. I'm... So what is yeah. next for you then? What is your next plan? Because oh, I love this. I wish there was more stuff like this because as much as I love the British sound that's coming out, I don't want to yeah, say it's too sure. modern, but I don't really feel a lot of traditional jazz elements in there. And obviously, the music will progress and evolve over time. So that's yeah. soon going to be the definition of jazz. Well, again, you know, I, I said it earlier as we, we were having this, this lovely conversation that the culture changes and, you know, it's not, it's not up to us to prevent it from changing. I mean, we live in this culture and this is today and this is what it is. And I think it's a very prolific time for jazz music. I think there's, there's more great jazz musicians around on the scene today than ever before. Um, although as you pointed out, and I agree with you that, that it's not nearly as part of mainstream culture as it used to be. It's really become quite the subculture, you know, and it's worldwide. Um, so there's a lot of good to be had from all of this. And our responsibility is to go out and be, 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 be aware of what's out there and to make our choices, you know, they, you know, you, you dig Logan Richardson or do you dig somebody else, you know, or what, what, what does I happen to think Logan is, is incredibly brilliant. He's an alto saxophone player, by the way, yes. who's a blue note recording artist. And I had the good fortune of playing with him a little bit and I still can't figure out what he's doing, but I sure <laughs> would like to figure it out. <laughs> so, you know, that's, that's right now I'm thinking about a tune in seven today, you know, Okay, uh, so when you're teaching, oh. what do yeah. you actually advise the kids that are actually planning to take this course for life, like serious? Because I'm telling you the burnout from my age group was extreme. Like from people 10 years ago I was playing, I want to say out of 100, maybe 15, if that yeah, much. I, I mean, that... The message that I have in 2023 is no different than the message I had in 1993. Um, and that's, it kind of comes in two parts. The first part is um, 
the first little two-part segment here is um, if you can see yourself doing something else, it's probably not a terrible idea to do that. Um, um, not that you would give up on music or whatnot, but but if you can't see yourself doing anything else but playing jazz music, then it's the opposite scenario. You have to go after it because you'll always regret if you didn't. Doesn't have to be for the rest of your life, but you know, that's that's what I would the first thing I would tell, you know, somebody wanting to. Uh, play jazz for for a living per se. And I, I use that term lightly, but the other, the, the other thing that I would tell them is like, um, to make just a little checklist, you know, um, be creative and open-minded. Um, and, um, keep, keep your hopes high, but keep your financial expectations low. Oh, so you don't get caught up in that you know what i mean that's not to say you some some cats might go out and start earning six figures playing jazz um i think some people can do that you know um so but in general i think you know you have to you have to be in it for the music itself first and foremost when i came to new york see i was i was delusional I, I could I could almost not reconcile the fact that there was human beings playing this music because it sounded so amazing to me. And I'll I'll, I'll tell you one brief story where I was uh, I was transporting Joe Henderson from a clinic to a clinic and back to where his hotel was. And lucky for me, it was like an hour both ways. On the way back, okay, yeah, no, Mr. Mr. got my attention uh, fully. Yeah. On the way, yeah, on the way back, Mr. Henderson. Uh, uh, told me, you know, I- I'm hungry. Let's let's get something to eat. What do you say? I said, sure. Where do you want to eat, man? He says, um, pointed to McDonald's on, you know, Highway One, and I was like, oh, Joe Henderson's going to eat McDonald's. I-, I thought we were going to go to a five star restaurant because, <laughs> you know, Joe Joe Henderson, you know, probably eats nothing but steak, you know, because he's Joe Henderson. And so we, we, we headed to McDonald's, and I'm nervous. Leander, I'm nervous. You know why I'm nervous? Why? I'm nervous because I'm afraid that he's going to get attacked by all the, all the paparazzi and all the people wanting his autograph and all the people that want to talk to him about page one. <laughs> so um, much to my, my surprise, not my chagrin so much, but my, like my surprise, Nobody knew who he was in that particular McDonald's on that particular day. And the more I hung out with Joe and got to know him, the more I realized that this is just a this is just an amazing artist who's in it for the music. And he's right here eating that Big Mac right in front of me. And so what I wasn't as surprised because of those experiences and others too, like that. Where you you know you ever met your heroes? Of course, you have met some of them. And what's the expectation? What is what do you think they are as a person? Whatnot. When I got to New York, I was still actually a little bit surprised when I would show up to rehearsal, you know, and it's like an unpaid rehearsal at the musicians' union, 
and I'm standing or sitting next to Randy Brecker. Damn. Mm -hmm. I'm here because I'm trying to break into the scene. Why is Randy Brecker here? Randy Brecker is here because he wants to play, man, because he's a real deal cat. He wants to play the music. He's making zero. I'm making zero. We're there to play the music. And he's on a completely different level. He's a celebrity, right? In our world, Randy Brecker yes, is a celebrity. In all worlds, yes, I agree. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a, a celebrity even outside of the world of music. And he's there at the same rehearsal with me playing that music, paying for the meter outside or whatnot, you know, or for the subway. So that's, that's a biggie. That's a biggie right there, you know? That's where, you know, if you're a young man or woman, you, you know, get into this scene and you have to understand that it's about the music. And another thing, it's about the music. Oh, and it's about the music. So if you feel that, you're going to succeed because you're going to persevere because you're going to just, anybody who just wants to play is going to get better. And they're going to find themselves on all sorts of gigs, traveling and going everywhere they could possibly imagine. I think in most cases, okay, from but perseverance, and I would imagine enough God-given talent to be able to back it up too. You know, if you're really feeling it like that, I think most people, if they're feeling it on that level, probably have some talent to back it up. Okay, sir, but sir, I got to play devil's advocate here because you know, <laughs> you won the downbeat award. As a student, so you're I telling won, me you I won three thinking, of them actually, huh? What In high that? school, I won the outstanding performance for classical and jazz trumpet. Okay, so you, out of all people, did not think you were going to be on the magazine covers, going on tour, being this guy. I thought I thought all those things. I thought I was going to be a huge star. Oh, um. okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then I realized, guess what? It's about the music. <laughs> okay. And Every so, now yeah, I, I won that I won that downbeat award in nineteen eighty eight. I was super proud of that because Jeff Jeff Beal, trumpet player, the person who now is you know, is a great I loved him as a trumpet player and I love him as a person. He actually lives in New York now. He's the person who wrote all the film scores for House of Cards. He was there to study with Rayburn Wright, and he had won it in 1984, collegiate. And so when I won it in 88, I was like so into it. And a little story about that. And it's all about decisions, Leander. I mean, this is decisions, 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 man. What is it that you actually want to do? You have to know this. So in 1988, you mentioned that I won that award. What came from that? Rayburn Wright called me up on the telephone and said, somebody wants to speak to you from GRP Records. They're looking for the, the trumpet version of Kenny G and or, oh. or Najee or whoever it was at the time that was big in those days. They specifically mentioned a guy named Nelson Rangel because Nelson had won that same award a couple years back or something like that. And he was since smooth jazz was just starting to come around. You know, they're starting to call it that, I guess. So I went to New York. I got my car and I went to New York when I met with GRP Records. And I made, oh, I, I was in this band called Cabo Frio that did like Algero covers and stuff like that. I loved that stuff. 
I've totally geeked out on the pop stuff, you know, the crossover pop stuff that Al Jones was doing at that time. The Nita Baker record had just come Dude, out at that time. When Nathan East came on, I told him, I'm a huge fan of smooth jazz. I know you're not supposed to say that. <laughs> I know not? a lot of people it's... look down on it, but that whole era, oh, I think, is one reason that lifted up jazz for a few more years. Hey, listen, before it was called smooth jazz, you had Weather Report. And then you have, you know, this wonderful, again, you know, you have Grover Washington yes. making those beautiful tracks. Then they didn't call it smooth jazz back then, but that's what it was. And then you have David Sanborn breaking ground with those Marcus Miller uh, production as we speak is a, a wonderful record even benson that was that oh george benson is incredible Breeze is a great record you know yeah and and and, and george is deep like george george recorded i'm a i'm a elise regina brazilian singer super fan and there's a song called denara denara uh which is a song by yvonne Linz. and george benson covered that in 1982 very few people even know about that tune and on Time Bandits, I wrote a tune on that called Groove Samba. And I used the bridge from Denra Denra. The changes from that bridge on my record. That's my, my that's my hat off to Elise Regina and Yvonne Lenz. But yeah, to get back to the smooth jazz, so so they're doing so I made a demo tape. And my demo tape consisted of like a, a funk version of um in a sentimental mood. And then I wrote this other thing, which is like one of those like a rooftop from the Al Jarreau records, that, that kind of a vibe. I think I had three or four tunes on it. And he went, the, the, the guy listened to it, it was on cassette tape in those days, right? And he listens to it and he says, it's too jazzy. Um, I had already gone as far in that direction as I could possibly go. So at that point, um, I gave up on that discussion because he wanted me to dumb it down and I wasn't going to do it. Um, at that point, I had had this tape of me and Tom Christensen playing with J.J. Johnson. <laughs> we actually got to play with J.J. Johnson at one of those Rangers holiday concerts at the Eastman Theater. And I had a tape of it. And I also had a pic some pictures of when I had sat in and befriended Woody Shaw. And so I totally went the other direction with this guy. And he, he said, by the way, in the midst of this conversation, he said, this is more of what we're looking for. And he went up into his, uh, his bookcase and he grabbed a cassette. I guess he was on the cassette. I With a demo right alongside my demo. I'll give you one guess, though. One guess. Was it Woody or Winton? Think smooth jazz. Smooth jazz, okay. Right next to my cassette was another person's cassette. Chris Bodie. Oh. Was in the running for the same contract. I don't know if he ever took that contract or not, but you see that he said yes to that direction, right? When I, that door opened for me and he, he presented me with, why don't you dumb down this, put a little less changes in it, and, and oh, let's get Victor Bailey to play with you. Wouldn't that be quaint if we had two Baileys on? I just say, man, I don't know about this. And so I went the other direction with him, with, with Woody, JJ. And he said, oh, yeah, we could sell that in Japan. I never heard from him again. But I, I actually deliberately put the kibosh on that because I knew what I wanted to play. And I knew that where my limits were. And the reason I didn't make a record until my 50s was because everybody who had presented 
opportunity for me, either wanted to tell me what to play or who to play with. So I said, respectfully, okay. no. I mean, I'll wait until that's... I got the means to do it myself. Honorable in its own way, too. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean. So would uh, you have done smooth jazz now if you were given that opportunity? Oh, no. No, that decision was made itself for me. You know, the door opened. I closed it deliberately. Okay. I because what, because yeah. what I what I did, which was, see, to me, like, 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 All Fly Home by Al Jarreau, This Time by Al Jarreau, if you're familiar with those two records, um, and the album Jarreau with Morning as track one, um, that to me is really great music. High production value, deep in its own way, you know, great musicians all around, lots of chromaticism in the in the chord changes, you know, funky, you know, and beautiful and sappy and corny, all the stuff I like, you know. And um, once you take those elements, all of which I just, and, and you start turning it into, you know, one one or two chords or something, you know, or you start dumbing it down and, and taking the syncopation out of the rhythm. No, man. I, for me, I mean, me personally, no, I, I don't hear that. I don't feel that. Got to have that, that syncopation for it to be jazz. And the subsets of jazz, which James Brown would come with. James Brown can get away with playing one chord because he had that funk. You know what I mean? Yeah, it was valid just from that, you know. So, so yeah, I willfully walked away from that, no, <laughs> never to return. <laughs> it's just like I was going to say earlier, but you made it even more. It's like every now and then I do an interview, and the guest comes on here and just rolls me. It's like ah, if you get what, what I mean. What do you mean by that? Especially like you stump me. You throw a whole bunch of curveballs I wasn't expecting, and they come out of really? nowhere. If you get what I mean. Okay. It's not a bad thing. It's just that I was just not expecting you and you know Chris Body to be in competition with each other at one point. <laughs> well, we would never work. But it never got to that point. <laughs> it never got there. Okay. <laughs> I, I have. I mean, listen. If my heart was in it, you'd be. We'd be talking about a smooth jazz record right now. You know Understood. what I mean? I respect that but. to the finest, sir. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, yeah. sir. Well, wasn't feeling that. Could you tell everyone your website, how to contact you, where to find your album, anything else you want to throw out there? Sure. Uh, well, again, name is John Bailey, and you can go to johnbailey.com, which um, I paid $250 for johnbailey.com in 2006. Because <laughs> it's, it's a very common, boring name. As my wife would say, it's a very boring name. Not more well known. <laughs> so, yeah, but I do own johnbailey.com. So you can go there and, you know, check out discographies. There's a lot of cool stuff on there. And you can buy the record if you want. Or just check it out on streaming platforms. And um, there's, there's, there's some videos with a bunch of photos on there. Got this one photo, man. Like, I just love those old timers, you know? I just follow them around everywhere. And I've got this one photo with Harry Sweets Edison and and um, 
and Max Roach, and I'm in the middle. <laughs> so I'll be looking for I'm that proud. photo later. Nice. Yeah, I'm, I'm <laughs> proud. I'm proud about that one, man. Just like, and it, by, by the way, the story about that is that Sweets had just come off the bandstand playing one of those amazing solos with just like the one note, you know. He just said he he came with a and the house erupts. I'm talking like mayhem. People screaming, yelling, clapping. Last tune of the set, it was Lionel Hampton's band. And he comes off the set. I'm good, I'm following him off the band set because I want to go meet him. And I got intercepted by Max Roach. It was like, man, sweets, that was amazing. That was so amazing. That was so beautiful, like a like a child, you know. And as it occurred to me that Sweets was 86 at the time, and Max was 75. So to Max, Sweets was the big star as he was coming up. So he was like just putty in Sweets' hands. And then I then I then I chimed in and we talked the three of us for a minute and then Somebody snapped a photo. <laughs> okay. Just one more question before I let you go. Yeah, sure. Well, you, uh, so sure. anything, anything. One of my anything. favorite albums, Max Roach versus Buddy Rich. <laughs> Who won that battle, in your opinion? Uh, in my opinion. In your opinion. And I don't want a uh, politically correct answer. I want you to tell me who you think won that. <laughs> uh, it's so funny. It's all a matter of perspective. And I, and I am going to give you what's going to sound like a politically correct answer. Boo. <laughs> but it's not. It's not a political. It's, this is for my heart, man. Okay. Nobody won that battle because they're, it's like comparing apples to oranges. And I'm going to give you a parallel on that. There's two. Uh, there's You can almost divide jazz listeners into two categories. And you can, you can put one record one tune on one record as a, a, a line of demarcation for what the tastes are of that individual musician listener or you know non-musician listener and it's the the tenor battle between Sonny Stitt and Sonny Rollins on the Sunny Side Up record on the Eternal Triangle Dizzy's record on the Eternal Triangle the, the cats who are who are really into the trad jazz are going to say that Sonny Stitt cut Sonny Rollins and the cats who could like hang with Love Supreme and Ascension and, and some of the newer music that was coming out would say that Sonny Rollins cut Sonny's did. <laughs> okay. So what would you say on this album? The people who liked Max Rose? If, if I was, if I was a trad guy, I would say Buddy Rich was, was the winner. And if I was a bebop guy or beyond, I would, I would probably say that, um, Max Roach was the winner, but I'm both, so I can't really say. Oh, oh, oh. I love it all, man. You're killing me here. <laughs> I know. I love it all, and I don't mind telling you. I don't mind telling you. I love it all. Mr. John Bailey, everyone, I okay? The, <laughs> I love the apples, and I love the oranges, and I eat them both. Well, everyone, thank you for listening to this episode of Improv Exchange. <laughs> <laughs> this guy... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Have a good night, everyone. All right, All right Leander. That's that on jazz. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Improv Exchange. 
please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, please be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Improv Exchange.